Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible lets you pick from thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. Bill's got to get paid, lights got to stay on, and the music's got to be halfway decent, right? Since we're going to be talking about a big naval battle today, no better time to learn about one of history's greatest navies. Today's recommendation is Arthur Herman's To Rule the Waves, How the British Navy Shaped the Modern World. The exciting story of the Royal Navy from the English Civil War to the Falklands War, with characters, battles, triumph, tragedy, and a bunch of salty sea dogs. And it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1865. The place, South America. Francisco Solano Lopez has sent Paraguay on the offensive. His armies are on the march and his steamboat navy swarms the rivers. Standing against him are Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay, an uneasy partnership called the Triple Alliance. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 48, The Paraguayan War Part 2, The Triple Alliance. If it needs to be spelled out, yes, this is the second part to a series, and you're probably going to be lost if you didn't listen to part one. I will give you a quick recap in just a bit because it has been a while, but I don't start my stories from the middle, and you shouldn't either. The last episode was mostly background, but this episode is a lot more action. Today's episode will cover what I call Phase 1 of the Paraguayan War, the Paraguayan Offensive Phase, which lasted throughout 1865. Along the way, we will be formally introduced to our unknown soldiers, the armies of Paraguay and of the Triple Alliance. And we'll talk a little bit about that Triple Alliance. After all, it's the title of the episode. So before we go much farther, it's time for a recap. In episode 47, the Paraguayan War Part 1, The Rivers of Destiny, we were introduced to Paraguay, a remote, landlocked, and deeply strange little country in the heart of South America. Paraguay's early years of independence were dominated by the dictators Dr. Francia and Carlos Antonio Lopez. They turned Paraguay into an authoritarian, centralized, and extremely nationalist country, with a small but vibrant economy and a defensive, paranoid mindset. This was only amplified by Paraguay's third dictator, Francisco Solano Lopez. A megalomaniac narcissist with dreams of military glory, Lopez sought to turn Paraguay into a big player in the La Plata region of South America. In contrast to Paraguay, the Empire of Brazil and the republics of Argentina and Uruguay were deeply divided with lots of internal weaknesses and political issues and separatist tensions. Argentina was plagued by civil wars between the provincial federalists and the centralists of Buenos Aires. Brazil was almost too large to function, a massive slave state ruled by a European-style aristocracy. And Uruguay was pulled back and forth between them in a power struggle over who would control the Rio de la Plata, the rivers of destiny that shaped the future of South America. 
1863, Francisco Solano Lopez made the very unwise decision to intervene in this power struggle over Uruguay. When Brazil invaded Uruguay, despite his ultimatums, Lopez made another very unwise decision. He declared war on Brazil in November 1864 and invaded the northern province of Mato Grosso. And when Argentina refused to allow him passage through its territory, Lopez made his final terrible decision and invaded Argentina on April 13, 1865. Yep, the dictator of little bitty Paraguay had just attacked the two largest countries in South America. Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay decided to unite and form the Triple Alliance against the threat posed by Francisco Solano Lopez. So that is where we left off, with Paraguay invading Argentina and its enemies forming the Triple Alliance, and that is exactly where we are picking up today. Bam, two hours of content condensed into two minutes. If you need a refresher, or you don't remember any of that, Paraguay and War Part 1 is there waiting for you. If not, let's get moving with Part 2, the Triple Alliance, also known as the Increasingly Poor Decisions of Francisco Solano Lopez. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources and some wonderful, custom-made, very useful maps will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, link in the description. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. If you remember being in school, you probably remember dreading the group project. Everyone hates a group project. People try to take charge, they don't pull their weight, they argue, and you don't usually get to pick your partners. Group projects are the bane of every student's existence, and they don't get easier when that group project is a war, when you have to deal with allies. Alliances are tough. Joining forces against a mutual enemy sounds great, but in practice it gets complicated fast. Your allies might not be fighting for the same reasons as you. They might have different long-term goals than you, and they might want to fight the war differently. You might not trust them, and they might not trust you, and maybe you're both right. There is a running theme throughout history of two allies who defeat their mutual enemy, only to then turn on each other. Athens and Sparta, the United States and the Filipino insurgents, the Western allies in the Soviet Union, all allied against the Persians or the Spanish or Nazi Germany, all of whom were at each other's throats once their mutual enemy was a little bit out of the picture. Even successful alliances have issues. The United States and Great Britain during World War II had one of the friendliest alliances in history, but the Allied High Command problems were legendary. A lot of ink has been spilled on those. Even really good friends have issues on a group project. Our alliance in this series is the Triple Alliance, Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. Brazil and Argentina had a long history of conflict with each other and with Uruguay, and they didn't forget their old enmities. All three countries wanted different things out of the war. Some of them just wanted out of the war altogether, and they would have lots of issues cooperating. The Argentines, half of them still wanted to kill each other, and the Brazilian army and Brazilian navy were like feuding siblings. Inter-service rivalries, not just an American thing. As I have said before, one of the rarest and most important qualities in military leadership is the ability to get along with other people, especially peers. Something about generals and admirals that just makes them inherently egotistical. Anyone who thinks women are more dramatic than men 
hasn't read enough military history. Finally, alliances often run into another problem. When no one is really calling the shots, that violates a principle of war called unity of command. Unity of command basically means one mission, one boss. You want one boss in charge of things, you have too many bosses, things go wild fast. But in an alliance, by definition, you have multiple bosses. And in a triple alliance, there are one, two, three bosses. They always have too many cooks in the kitchen. On the other hand, Winston Churchill once said, There is only one thing worse than fighting with allies, and that is fighting without them. Paraguay had no allies. There was one person calling the shots. The Paraguayans had one guy in charge of everything, micromanaging everything and doing a really bad job. Unity of command is always desirable, unless the one guy in charge of everything is Francisco Solano Lopez. Today, we will continue the story of the Paraguayan War. This episode, part two of the series, will focus on the first phase of the conflict, the Paraguayan offensive phase. This is when Paraguay is attacking into Allied territory, and Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay are all trying to stop them. We will see the Triple Alliance come into being, for better or worse, and we will meet four armies and find out that most of them were really bad at war, except for one of them, which was just sort of bad at war. We will see, spoiler alert, the Paraguayan offensives fail, including the epic steamboat battle of the Riachuelo. And we will end as the Allies gather their forces to begin the second phase of the war, the invasion of Paraguay. And I will tell you why this story matters in part five. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is a very miserable trek into the unimproved interior of South America, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, do some yoga, watch that weird video your friend sent you, do the thing you need to do. So grab your cutlass and climb into the canoe. Yes, canoe, don't be a wuss. What do you mean Miguel got eaten by a jaguar? This is why we have a battle buddy system. Whatever. The Brazilian Navy awaits us. Independencia o muerte. Viva el Presidente López. Vamos de campaña. April 13th, 1865, was a tragic day for the United States of America. The previous night, Abraham Lincoln had been shot in Ford's Theater, a bitter coda to the American Civil War. But as North America's most terrible war was ending, South America's was just beginning. April 13th was a warm, misty morning in the Argentine town of Corrientes. The small river port lay just below the confluence of the Paraguay and Parana rivers, right across the border from Paraguay itself. Around 9 a.m., five Paraguayan steamboats floated down the Parana, headed for Corrientes. They were spotted by the crews of two Argentine gunboats, who just watched the Paraguayans come closer. Francisco Solano Lopez's government had declared war on Argentina on March 18, 1865, but had never bothered to tell Argentina. So as far as the Argentine sailors knew, the two nations were still at peace. So they were like, huh, that's weird. Wonder what they're up to. 
The Argentines watched until the Paraguayan ships, packed with infantry in bright red uniforms, were right alongside them, still like, huh, that's weird. Then the Paraguayans leveled their muskets and fired. Surprise was total. The Paraguayans threw grappling hooks onto the Argentine ships and climbed aboard. The Argentine sailors either swam to safety or died on the spot. Within minutes, the Paraguayans were headed back to Asuncion, towing the captured steamers behind them. It had taken 30 minutes, and two more ships had just joined the Paraguayan Navy. The next day, the Paraguayan steamboats returned. Thousands of troops, led by General Venceslao Robles, stormed ashore and raised their country's flag over Corrientes without firing a shot. The Paraguayans had captured an Argentine provincial capital, and General Robles prepared to march south along the Parana River, in the direction of Buenos Aires and La Plata. Marshal Lopez's great offensive had begun. The people of Corrientes shrugged. Corrientes province was an old Federalist stronghold, and they resented the centralists of Buenos Aires. Argentine nationalism hadn't really called on here. They still saw themselves as Cordentinos, not Argentines. There were some local leaders who rode off into the interior to try and rally resistance, but most Cordentinos were indifferent. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Ironically, the people of Buenos Aires were much angrier. Ferocious demonstrations erupted in the streets. The city newspaper slammed Lopez as a barbarian tyrant, a tropical Caligula. One American observer had seen this exact kind of war fever four years earlier, after the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter. He said, Bonfires, rockets, crackers, and all the improvised paraphernalia of great and glorious occasion were conspicuous in every street of the city. President Bartolomé Mitre, always a canny politician, made a rousing speech to the crowds, declaring that he would lead Argentina's armies personally against the invader. Tomorrow the barracks, one week Corrientes, three months Asuncion. As for myself, I will not rest until the peace that was treacherously broken is restored and the honor of the Argentine nation is vindicated. These were big words for a country with, one, no real army, two, a tiny navy with three ships, two of which the Paraguayans had just shoplifted, and three, the most unstable politics in South America. Even as Buenos Aires was flooding with anger, out in the provinces the silence was deafening. Argentine nationalism was still very lukewarm out here. Lots of the provincial caudillos, the warlords, gave Mitre their support, but a lot of them didn't. They were weighing their options. The most dangerous warlord was Justo José de Urquiza, the caldillo of Entre Rios province. Luckily for Mitre, Urquiza had sided with the Argentine government instead of López, which had been a question. But other caldillos might swing the other way if it looked like Paraguay was winning. Argentina was too fragmented to defend itself without help. Mitre needed an ally. He needed Brazil. Brazil and Argentina were historical enemies. There were many people in Argentina who saw Brazil as their mortal enemy and vice versa. But now that both countries were at war with Solano Lopez, well, the enemy of my enemy is my new, not-so-best friend. <laughs> Only hours after the attack on Corrientes, Mitre was in a closed-door meeting with the Brazilian ambassador. Together with his old comrade Venancio Flores, the new president of Uruguay, 
they hammered out a deal. On May 1st, 1865, diplomats from Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay signed one of the most notorious documents in South American history, the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. And guys, this treaty is super important. Its terms are critical to the course and outcome of this war. Most of it was pretty standard. Hey, we're friends now. We're going to work together, blah, blah, blah. But let's talk about the important parts. The treaty spelled out how the Allied High Command would work. And this is where that group project thing comes in. Who would be in charge? The treaty said that Supreme Command of the Allied Land Forces would go to, get this, whoever's territory they happen to be in at the moment. In Argentina or in Paraguay itself, President Mitre would command. In Uruguay, President Flores would command. And a Brazilian general would take charge on Brazilian soil. Brazilian Admiral Joaquim Lisboa, the Marquis of Tamandare, would command Allied naval forces. So, a uh, few problems with this. First, the war would mostly take place in Argentina and Paraguay, which meant that by default, Bartolomé Mitre was the Allied Supreme Commander. But the Brazilians contributed most of the troops to the alliance, and their generals were not happy about taking orders from an Argentine. Second, the Brazilian navy did not fall under the joint Allied command. Admiral Tamandare did whatever he wanted. And as it turned out, Admiral Tamandare was as useful as a chocolate teapot. The lack of a joint army-navy command would cause big problems throughout the war. James, you're asking, what about Uruguay? Good question. Uruguay was happy to be here. Then there were the Allied war aims, what they wanted from the war. The treaty stated that the primary objective of the Triple Alliance was to remove Francisco Solano Lopez from power. The war was against the Paraguayan government, not the Paraguayan people, or at least so they said. But the treaty also laid out the Allied peace terms. Paraguay would remain independent, but... The Allies would receive all their territory they claimed, which amounted to two-thirds of Paraguay's land space in 1864. The Paraguayan River would be a free navigation zone. The Paraguay would be disarmed and all its fortresses destroyed. And Paraguay would pay the full costs of the war for all three Allies. Two-thirds of your territory, you pay for everything, you can't have a military. Guys, these were extremely harsh terms unreasonable terms. To put it in perspective, these are considerably worse than what the Allies imposed on Germany after World War I. Why did the Allies agree to this? Well, for one thing, lots of Argentines still saw Paraguay as a lost province that needed to be reconquered. By taking two-thirds of Paraguay, they were technically not settling for their full claims. Brazil, on the other hand, was steaming mad at Paraguay, and no one was angrier than Emperor Pedro II. Pedro was a radically progressive man for his time, not warlike at all. But he saw Lopez as the mortal enemy of civilization and human progress. Pedro would not rest until Lopez was out of power, and Paraguay was no longer a threat to anybody. But the international community did not share this logic. They would consider these terms insane. Like, yes, Lopez is crazy. He shouldn't have attacked you. We were sympathetic. But you guys are just going to split Paraguay up like pulled pork. Like, this dude just slapped you at the bar, you're pu pulling out a chainsaw. This is a massive overreaction. The Allies knew how this would look. They, they knew that this would not look good to anyone else. So there were two other clauses to the Treaty of the Triple Alliance. 
these will be relevant. First, none of the allies could make peace until all three allies agreed, like we are all locked into this group project together. Finally, the treaty was secret. The world knew there was an alliance, but the terms of the treaty were supposed to remain confidential. But someone talked. Someone always talks. By early 1866, the whole world knew the terms of the Triple Alliance, including Paraguay. This would be how the treaty determined the course of the conflict. The one peace term that the Allies wanted, Lopez's removal, was the one term Lopez could never concede. He saw his country as an extension of himself, and he believed it was his duty to stand by her to the bitter end. And to the Paraguayans as a whole, not just Lopez, the Alliance's peace terms meant their nation's dismemberment, their military's destruction, their economy's ruin, the death of their independence. The treaty turned the Paraguayan war into a fight for national survival. Their war cry would become independencia o muerte, independence or death. Lopez had absolutely started the war, no question about that. He is absolutely to blame for starting this war. But by locking the Allies in, by setting extreme conditions for victory, and by convincing Paraguay that this was an existential struggle, the Treaty of the Triple Alliance raised the stakes. It turned the Paraguayan War from just another local conflict into the most destructive war in South American history. Even as the Alliance was coming together, Marshal Lopez's armies were marching into Argentina and Brazil. Welcome to Phase 1 of the Paraguayan War, the Paraguayan Offensive Phase, which will last most of 1865. Lopez had launched a two-pronged invasion, two prongs. In the west, General Venceslao Robles' army was based in Corrientes. His mission was to advance south along the Parana River, directly towards Buenos Aires. General Robles was an old salty man, the most senior officer in the Paraguayan army and he will be shot by the end of this episode, but not by the Allies. The Paraguayan Eastern Army was originally commanded by Major Pedro Duarte. Duarte was a tough commander, a soldier-soldier, beloved by the 12,000 men he had been training for months. So, of course, Lopez replaced him with an incompetent crony. Lieutenant Colonel Antonio Estegaribia had been Lopez's personal military assistant, so despite being an absolute moron with zero experience, he got command of the Eastern Army. Stupid dictator shenanigans. And of course, Duarte hated Estegribia for taking his job, and Estegribia hated Duarte for being better than him, which he was. Estegribia and Duarte were ordered to march across Misiones province towards the Uruguay River, which forms the border between the Argentine province of Corrientes and the Brazilian province of Rio Grande do Sul. Maps. <laughs> maps are going to help. The maps are on my, on my website. Check the link in the description of this podcast episode. The maps will help. <laughs> then Estegribia and Duarte would march down the Uruguay River, parallel to General Robles, 100 miles to their west. And I, I'll remind you, I do have arrows showing where these guys are going on the map. It's like, it's not just cities. It's, here's where this army was. Here's where this army was. It's going to be super helpful. This geography, I know, isn't m very uh, familiar to most of you. So anyway, throughout May 1865, both these armies were pushing south, deeper into Allied territory, two long columns of red-uniformed infantry and cavalry crossing swamps and floodplains and ravines. Two Paraguayan armies headed down the two rivers that fed La Plata, going 
somewhere. What was their objective? No one knew, not even their own generals. This was the critical flaw in Lopez's Grand Offensive of 1865. See, when most people start wars, they at least have some kind of goal in mind. War aims. Like the Alliance spelled out their war aims very quickly, psychotic as they were. If you'll recall, Lopez's original war aim had been to save his Blanco allies in Uruguay. But that goal no longer existed. The Blancos were completely defeated. So, what was Lopez launching this invasion to accomplish? What was his plan? Guys, Lopez didn't have a plan. No objective. No strategy. Remember, he had, like, Homer simpson his way into this war. Some historians are like, that's silly. He must have had a strategy, because it would be really stupid if he didn't have a strategy. Guess what? It was really stupid. The two prongs of the Paraguayan offensive were just sort of klutzing into enemy territory with no real destination. Step one, invade Argentina. Step two. Step three, win the war. Though what winning even meant, no one could say. If Lopez had kicked off a war with no strategy or objective, he made it even worse by being a delusional megalomaniac. Lopez saw himself as a military genius, but he refused to delegate a single bit of authority. He never told his generals what his strategy was or what their objective was. Just do what I say, don't ask questions. He saw independent thought as suspicious or even treasonous. But Lopez was also a physical coward who refused to leave Paraguay throughout 1865 when his armies were marching hundreds of miles into enemy territory. But he still tried to micromanage them. This is a great example of the opposite of how to wield the chains of command. Remember back in episode 46 we talked about chains of command and how commanders exercise authority and uh, control their forces? This is what you don't do. So Lopez ordered General Robles to march south along the east bank of the Piranha River. Just keep going until I say stop. Robles was like, okay boss, you got it. So thousands of Paraguayan soldiers just marched south deeper into Argentina and their general had no idea where they were going or why. But on the other hand, General Robles had almost 20,000 men, only opposed by a few thousand Argentines under General Venceslao Polnero. There was nothing to stop him from just steamrolling all the way to Buenos Aires. Well, nothing except the iron hand of logistics. See, Robles was having trouble keeping his army fed. He tried living off the land, but he didn't find enough food and he just pissed off the locals who started launching guerrilla attacks on his foraging parties. South America in the 19th century had very few improved roads and even fewer railways, so the only way to supply an army over a long distance was by river transport. This is why I harped on those rivers so much. The rivers of South America were the logistic highways that fed the armies. The course of the rivers determined the course of the war. And no matter how dangerous the Paraguayan army was, it didn't control the Piranha River. The Allies were about to make this fact very clear. Argentine General Venceslao Polnero was an old, experienced greybeard. He knew the Paraguayans had to be stopped, but he didn't have enough men to risk a battle against Robles. Luckily, Admiral Francisco Barroso and his squadron of Brazilian warships had just come up the Piranha River. So Polnero went over to Barroso and said, listen dude, I got a plan. It was a daring plan. It would be the first joint allied mission of the war. 
The small Argentine army loaded up on the Brazilian fleet, then they steamed up the Piranha, past Robles' army, headed for Corrientes. The Allied strike force arrived at Corrientes on May 25, 1865, Argentine Independence Day. Polnero's men stormed ashore under the cover of Brazilian naval gunfire. This time it was the Paraguayans who were surprised by the sudden appearance of the Allies. The few Paraguayan troops retreated to a brick barracks complex to make their stand. The first Argentine unit to attack this makeshift fortress was the Legio Militar. This was a force of French and Italian mercenaries, including many Crimean War veterans, led by Italian-born Major Gian Battista Charlione. Guys, what are you doing here? You went through the Crimean War and you want more? And this was where the Allies learned something about their foes. The Paraguayans fought like lunatics in every single battle of this war. The average Paraguayan soldier had shockingly high morale, often fighting to the death. We will see lots more of this later. The Argentines and Paraguayans fought hand-to-hand, -hand, shooting and screaming and stabbing within the walls of the barracks. Major Charlione took a saber cut to the face, but survived. The Argentines had to make multiple assaults before their superior numbers prevailed, and the Paraguayans retreated to make another insane stand at a nearby bridge. Even when the Paraguayan officers were all killed, the rank and file refused to give way. Then Allied reinforcements arrived, the Brazilian 9th Infantry Brigade and an artillery battery. The Brazilian guns poured grape shot into the Paraguayan defenders, and the Allies launched a final bayonet charge that forced their enemies to retreat. The Paraguayans left the bridge literally carpeted with their dead. The Brazilians and Argentines quickly reoccupied the city of Corrientes. General Polnero didn't have enough soldiers to hold the city. That wasn't the point. After looting all the Paraguayan supplies and kinda letting their troops loot Corrientes itself a little bit, the Allies withdrew on May 27th. With them went any Corrientino citizens who had had enough of the Paraguayan occupation. The Allied raid on Corrientes, the first real battle between the Allies and the Paraguayans, was over. And on paper, it was pretty insignificant. The Paraguayans lost 400 men, the Allies lost 300, and Polnero had only held Corrientes for less than two days. It was just a raid. But this tiny battle changed the course of the Paraguayan War. You can compare it to the Doolittle Raid of World War II, it was a big morale boost for the Allies, especially Argentina, because it showed that they were fighting back. And also like the Doolittle Raid, it prompted a fatal overreaction from its target. In this case, Francisco Solano Lopez. Because Lopez wigged out when he learned about the raid. Even after the Allies withdrew, even after it was clear that this was just a pinprick that did no real damage, Lopez was just still flipping his lid. The big thing that he did was that he ordered General Robles, who had marched 200 miles down the Piranha River, to retrace his steps and come back to Corrientes. Lopez abandoned the entire western prong of his invasion plan as a reaction to the Allied raid. Because the raid on Corrientes highlighted a simple fact. Paraguay didn't control the rivers. As long as the Brazilian Navy was out there, Lopez's army could not be supplied by the river, and the Allies could strike his rear areas at will. So Lopez began planning a battle, a climactic showdown between his own understrength navy and Admiral Barroso's Brazilian naval squadron. 
As he planned, the forces of Paraguay and the Triple Alliance gathered, mustered, trained, and prepared for the largest war in South American history. So before we move forward to the great battles of 1865, let's meet these militaries, the armies and navies of the Paraguayan War. In part one, we talked about how people try to build nations. One of the most common ways to unify your people is the creation of a national military. Many historical armies have been unifying forces for their states or empires. The Roman legions, the Mongol hordes, Napoleon's French army, the US army, all great instruments for unifying a diverse population to achieve a common goal. Sometimes it was less the nation building the military than the military building the nation. Latin American armies of the 19th century were tiny little engines of nationalism, for better or for worse. As I always say, militaries are ultimately a reflection of the societies that produce them, and if that society is divided by political or racial or social strife, the military will reflect that. And Latin America had those problems in spades. But 19th century South American militaries had other issues. See, these guys were way, way down on the power rankings compared to their contemporaries in Europe or America. I would rate the military effectiveness of these armies a couple notches below either side of the American Civil War, and most of those guys sucked, which is pretty bad. There was just a general lack of basic competence or military skill or common sense, leading to lots of Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War edition. The generalship in particular was pretty freaking bad. There is one general in this war who really knows what he's doing, and he doesn't show up until part four. This wasn't their fault. People in 19th century Latin America weren't stupid. They just didn't have the resources or the money or the experience or the state capacity to build really effective military institutions. Even their weapons were usually European hand-me-downs, like Britain or France needs to clear out its old warehouses. Oh, I bet the South Americans will buy these. Just the dumping ground for all their obsolete military stock. So guys, the militaries of the Paraguayan War were doing their best. It wasn't much, but it was their best. We're going to start, again, not with the best military, but with the least bad. The Brazilian army and navy trace their lineage to their Portuguese forebears, but after two wars with Argentina and multiple rebellions, they had proud traditions of their own, and their regimental standards contained battle honors from decades past. But like the U.S. army in the 19th century, the Brazilian regular army was very small relative to the size of their country, only about 17,000 men. Pay was low, life was hard, and promotion came slowly. The government in Rio underfunded and neglected the army. Brazil's politicians saw a powerful officer corps as a fast ticket to military coupsville. And this was a justified fear. You could look anywhere in Latin America for evidence of that. Like, people still to this day blame the United States for almost all Latin American military coups, which, to be fair, we, we had a part in some of those. 
They were doing it way before we got involved. Like, it's second only to soccer as their favorite sport, military coups. There was also a racial fear. The Brazilian officer corps was all white, but its rank and file were usually mestizo, mulatto, or black. Rural black recruits from the plantations of central Brazil dominated the infantry, and mestizo cowboys from southern Brazil's pampas dominated the cavalry. Recruitment was difficult since army life sucked, so lots of recruits were just dragged off the streets, or they were escaped slaves hiding from their plantation owners. So as far as the Brazilian aristocracy was concerned, their army was politically and racially suspect. Dom Pedro wasn't a big fan of the army either, for better reasons. Unlike other monarchs of his day, he didn't really see himself as a military leader. Pedro respected individual servicemen as people, but he saw militarism as a corrosive influence. He wanted the nation's taxes to go to more schools, not more guns. So the bad news. The Brazilian army was underfunded and made up of societal outcasts. What was the good news? First, the Brazilians had the only army in the Paraguayan War with a professional officer corps. Most of them had been educated at the Imperial Military Academy in Rio de Janeiro, the oldest national military academy in the Americas. Yes, including West Point. This educational edge would end up being very important in two areas, engineering and logistics, but just gave a general bump to every other area as well. Another big advantage was weaponry. While many Brazilian troops still use flintlock muskets, the weapons of the American Revolution, Others were receiving the newer Minier rifled muskets, the weapons of the Civil War. By the midpoint of the war, most Brazilian soldiers carried the pattern 1853 infield, and most of these were Crimean War surplus hand-me-downs from the British Army. I spent a lot of time back during the Crimean War talking about the advantages of the infield rifle, and most Brazilians in this war carry the infield rifle. The Brazilian artillery was also very high quality, and once again, manned by professional officers. The Brazilian soldier's uniform was usually a dark blue. Early on, they wore these fancy European-style uniforms with, you know, all the plumes and the sashes and stuff. But by, you know, midpoint of the war, these have transitioned to much more pragmatic designs. By 1867 or 1868, the Brazilian soldier basically looked like an American Civil War soldier. Not by accident. Brazil bought lots of surplus uniforms from the USA, which is like, we have hundreds of thousands of Union uniforms. Hey, Brazil, you want some of these? Again, getting their hand-me-downs. So your average Brazilian soldier by the midpoint of this war is literally wearing a blue Union uniform, forage cap and all. But the army was still very small when the war began. The National Guard, 200,000 strong on paper, ended up being basically useless. So on January 7th, 1865... Dom Pedro authorized the creation of the Voluntarios de Patria, the Fatherland Volunteers. Pedro himself signed up as the first volunteer, followed by thousands of eager young patriots and some less-than-willing conscripts. Many were slaves, quote-unquote, donated by their masters. Here, I'm a true patriot. Have my best slave for the army. What, you want me to go? No, have a, have a slave. <laughs> But most voluntarios were genuine patriots. There are photographs of these guys that you could easily mistake for Civil War pictures. Young men posing for the camera with knives or muskets trying to look tough. One of these guys was the 18-year-old Private Dionisio Cerquiera, who fought in 19 battles throughout the war and left a legendary memoir of the conflict. 
I'll be quoting Serkiera quite a bunch in this series. A few of them were women. The most famous was Sergeant Jovita Fetosa, who became a minor celebrity for disguising herself and joining up in another Mulan situation, though she was discovered and they didn't let her go to the front. Who, who knows how many women actually did slip through the cracks. Many voluntarios were white, but a very large number were black. Most of them served in regular units, but there were some units that were all black, including the officers. The most famous were the Zuavos Bahianos, who dressed in imitation of the famous French Zouaves. Their color scheme was baggy red trousers, green vests, short blue jackets, and red fezes. The second Zuavos commander was Marcolino José Díaz, an old army veteran and master of capoeira, the Brazilian martial art. The Voluntarios de Patria were the boys of 65, the patriots answering the call of their fatherland. Much like the Civil War's boys of 61, they were about to be disillusioned. But they were a new kind of Brazilian army, one that drew on the whole empire from all classes and races, the very kind of national army that the Brazilian elites feared, an army that was building a nation. The Brazilian Navy was also a professional institution. British officers had helped to organize it just after independence, and they passed on the spirit and traditions of the Royal Navy. Brazil had the largest navy in South America, with 33 ocean-going steam warships armed with modern artillery. But this navy had two major weaknesses. First, it was a blue-water navy, an ocean-going navy, with very little experience in the shallow rivers of La Plata. Second was its leader. Admiral Joaquim Marques Lisboa, Baron of Tamandare, was very cautious, very prickly, and very difficult to get along with. Tamandare was actively unhelpful throughout this group project. So Brazil, with its much greater resources and professional military, would end up carrying the main burden of the Triple Alliance. Later stages of this war will basically just be Brazil versus Paraguay. She was that girl in the group project who does most of the work because the other two members just had a lot going on. Unlike Dom Pedro, Argentine President Bartolome Mitre saw himself as a military leader, but he had trouble finding a military to lead. The civil wars between Centralists and Federalists had prevented the creation of a truly national army. Mitre started to build one, a new nationwide institution to try and unify his very fragmented nation. But by 1864, the Argentine army was still very, very new. They only had 6,000 men, and most of which were poorly organized with no professional officers. The detachments that had launched the raid on Corrientes were basically all the forces Mitre had. To raise a truly national army, Mitre would need to call up the Provincial National Guard. Huh, okay, how well is that going to go? Lots of those dudes out in the boonies hated Buenos Aires. They were likelier to fight against the central government than for it. Eventually, the provinces did cough up some units. Most of these soldiers were gauchos, the racially diverse cowboys from the Pampas, and they didn't take well to military discipline. Lots of them were unwilling conscripts, so desertion was a big problem. There were, there were stories that some units from the provinces had to be chained up on their way to the war front. That's real great for morale. Yeah, lots of these guys just flat out did not want to be here. They didn't see themselves as part of a broader Argentina and had no real patriotic zeal. Still, though, a good half the Argentine army was composed of provincial units, and some of them fought very well. 
the Corrientes Battalion would be one of the best units in the army. The battalions from Buenos Aires province, where there was genuine war enthusiasm, provided the core of the Argentine army. Many of the brightest young men of the Porteño elite answered the call, including the children of rich families and important government officials. There were also lots of foreigners. Buenos Aires was a cosmopolitan city, full of European immigrants and soldiers of fortune, lots of whom ended up in the Legio Militar. This unit contained French, Italian, German, Polish, and all sorts of other mercenaries, usually veterans of the many European conflicts, including the Crimean War. The Argentine soldier wore a wide array of uniforms depending on his unit. Light gray, sky blue, dark blue, more Zouave-style units with every color under the rainbow. They were usually pretty well-armed, their smoothbore muskets being replaced very quickly by modern rifles. Like, Argentina had plenty of money, they had plenty of resources. What they lacked was cohesion, motivation, unity. The Argentine soldier would fight well when the time came, but he didn't really believe in what he was fighting for. Argentina's army, divided, reluctant, and unstable, was a reflection of its society. Now, who am I forgetting? I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. Eh, it can't be that important. Oh yeah, Uruguay. Uruguay was just happy to be here. They were clearly the red-headed stepchild of the Triple Alliance, and they contributed the smallest army. The, the army would be led personally by President Venancio Flores, the crazy cowboy with a big mustache and a bad habit of almost getting killed all the time. The Uruguayan army was more suited for guerrilla warfare than for conventional warfare. Its soldiers were veterans of Uruguay's many civil wars, tough, ruthless men with long knives, infamous for cutting their enemies' throats. Not exactly a national or professional force. Uruguay itself was not super motivated for this war. After all, Paraguay hadn't done anything to them. They felt like Flores was only in this war to pay Brazil and Argentina back for supporting his rebellion, which was probably true. The Uruguayan army's best unit was the Florida Battalion, led by the Spanish-born Colonel Leon de Palleja. Yes, it's the Florida Battalion, nothing to do with the American Florida. Lots of places in Spanish-speaking world are named Florida. Palleja was one of the few officers in the Uruguayan army with a real professional background. He was charismatic and courageous, a father to his men, and did everything he could to fill their needs. The Uruguayan troops were barely supplied, basically living off whatever they could beg from their allies. They didn't even have boots for most of 1865. Palleja wrote constant letters to the Montevideo newspapers, begging his country to send aid. These letters and his war journal are two of the very important documents detailing like the average soldier's experience of the Paraguayan War. Palleja is an Uruguayan national hero with one big fault. He was really, really impulsive. So in June 1865, the Triple Alliance began to concentrate its strength at the Argentine town of Concordia, along the Uruguay River. President Mitre arrived to take personal command of the army, which numbered 20,000 men by July. 16,000, 80% of them, were Brazilian. The camp was full of mutual suspicion, lots of sideways glances and muttering about those monarchists over in Brazil and the crazy anarchists from Argentina. The Uruguayans were just happy to be here. 
Give Mitre credit for one thing. He was an amazing organizer and trainer. The infantry drilled for hours a day, learning basic formations and marching orders. The Allied cavalry attacked straw dummies with sabers and lances, charging shoulder to shoulder at the gallop on their pompous ponies. But the camp at Concordia had the same unwelcome guests of any pre-modern army. Oh look, it's our old friends. Dysentery, typhoid, malaria, you name it. Now, you might be looking for the microbe, the myth, the legend, cholera. He's not here yet. Oh, don't worry. He's coming. One British correspondent reported. The Brazilian troops were attaining considerable perfection in their exercises and maneuvering, but sickness was prevalent and the cold weather was severely felt by them. Nearly 2,000 were sick. James, you say, did he say cold weather? Oh yeah, it's the southern hemisphere. June, July, August, that's winter down here. It's still warmish because it's South America, but it was still winter. Now, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you'll know it's the 19th century. Guess who comes on campaign with these armies? You're right, camp followers. Hundreds of women, wives and sisters and daughters and mothers were also gathering at Concordia, cooking and mending and washing and tending to the sick. Women were always at war in this time period. They shared the hardships of the camp. Every single army in the Paraguayan War has a trail of women marching behind it. Mitre's allied army, training and getting sick and muttering at each other, were weeks away from combat. The eastern prong of the Paraguayan offensive marched down the Uruguay River towards them. The allied army prepared to face the legions of Francisco Solano Lopez. The Paraguayan army was Francisco Solano Lopez's army, his baby, his creation, in every way. He had been the war minister and the Paraguayan army's only general for most of his dad's regime. And remember, yes, Lopez was a delusional egomaniac dictator, but he took himself and his duties seriously, especially his military duties, just like his hero Napoleon. Lopez worked his butt off to modernize the Paraguayan army and navy, his model being the French army, which was a pretty good model for the time the French army was widely seen as the most modern army in the world. He had absorbed a lot of lessons during his time in Europe, especially the importance of modern weaponry, and he probably read more military texts than anyone else in Latin America. Give Lopez credit, he was a military reformer with lots of good ideas. The trouble lay in his character. When the war kicked off, Lopez ordered universal conscription of almost all the men in Paraguay between 16 and 40. And unlike his opponents, Lopez's centralized dictatorship had the capacity to do this. Like, no one argued with him. There was no province arguing with him or political faction arguing with him. They just conscripted everybody. By mid-1865, the Paraguayan army probably numbered about 75,000 men. Out of a population of 450,000. Do the math. Yes, that is an insane level of mobilization. This gave Lopez the largest army in South America by a long shot. Like one-sixth of his country's population was in the army. That's too big of a number. Those, those are like Germany at the end of World War II numbers. That's not good for your economy. Hint, hint, the fact that virtually all the military-age males were front-loaded into the army in 1865 at the beginning of the war, that's going to be an issue in, like, 1868. Lopez's logic was that he needed this big army to fight half of South America. And maybe he did, 
But that just hammers home what a terrible decision this war was in the first place. So the army was big, but was it good? Mm. The Paraguayan army had several major weaknesses. For one thing, Solano Lopez had one qualification for his officers. Follow my orders to the letter. You'll need to think, just do what you're told. Most officers were promoted from the ranks and given no professional education. They didn't know basic logistics or basic tactics. Most of them couldn't read a map, and lots of them couldn't read, period. They were extremely brave, but that just got them killed faster. Lopez compensated for this with foreign experts. He hired lots of European professionals, most of them British. And these guys were an invaluable military asset. Industrial experts, medical experts, engineers, architects. Most important was George Thompson, a former British Army officer who became Lopez's chief military engineer. Thompson would design most of Lopez's defensive positions throughout the war, and honestly, no one man did the Allies more damage than George Thompson. But the foreign experts were few in number. Another Paraguayan weakness was in weaponry. Lopez was a big believer in modern weaponry, but as long as Eliza Lynch was shelling out tons of money for her fancy parties, he could only buy so many guns. Paraguay had a few modern rifles and a few modern artillery pieces they had bought from Europe, but nowhere near enough for the whole army. So most Paraguayan soldiers carried the good old flintlock musket, many of which were the brown best model carried by the British army for like a century and a half. The brown best is basically my co-host by now. It's been in so many episodes. It's the weapon of Culloden, of Bunker Hill, of Waterloo, of the First Anglo-Afghan War. It's everywhere. The problem was, by 1865, this was a step or two below the modern rifles carried by the Alliance. The artillery was even worse. One observer reported seeing old Spanish cannons bearing the years 1684 and 1671, Indiana Jones quote, It belongs in a museum! This will get worse, because Paraguay was landlocked. When the Allied River blockade took effect, Paraguay lost access to foreign trade. Brazil and Argentina could buy weapons from the rest of the world. Paraguay would have to make do with what they already had, or what they could capture. Before the war, Lopez gathered his army at one of two main camps— his main army camp at Cerro Leon, southeast of Asuncion, was connected to the capital by Paraguay's only railway, or the great fortress of Humaita along the Paraguay River. The Paraguayan soldiers trained night and day, and it inevitably called a bunch of diseases, because dysentery is everyone's new best friend. Around 6,000 Paraguayan soldiers died of disease alone before even reaching the war front, which is, checks notes, 1% of the population! Not going well, guys. Unlike the Allies, the Paraguayan army shared a common ethnic identity, their Hispano-Guarani heritage. Most soldiers were uneducated, speaking only Guarani and a smattering of Spanish. Two exceptions. The Asuncion elite, which always had a higher proportion of Spanish genetics, made up most of the senior officers. And Paraguay's small black population formed their own units, including the elite 6th Marine Battalion, Nambi E, or Little Ears. The average Paraguayan soldier of Guarani descent was short, brown, and bore little facial hair. He was striking in appearance, with an innocent, trusting face and multicolored eyes like stained glass windows. 
The uniform consisted of a white cotton shirt and trousers with a bright red blouse and tall leather shako. By regulation, the Paraguayan army wore no shoes, not even the officers. Well, except for Lopez, of course, but the entire army is barefoot. The Paraguayan Navy was a hodgepodge of random boats commanded by Captain Pedro Ignacio Meza, who had no naval experience whatsoever. There was only one real warship, the British-made Taquari, which Lopez had purchased on his European visit. The rest were civilian steamboats with just guns thrown onto them, not even close to matching the Brazilian battle fleet. The only advantage was that each Paraguayan naval vessel had a British engineer on its crew. So that is your military matchup. And you might look at this and think, how did Paraguay ever stand a chance against the Triple Alliance? Well, they did. For two big reasons. First was iron discipline. Paraguayan army punishments were remarkably severe. Beatings and executions were fairly common, but no one dreamed of mutiny and there were very few desertions. George Thompson observed, The Paraguayans were the most respectful and obedient men imaginable. A Paraguayan never complained of an injustice and was perfectly contented with whatever his superior determined. If he was flogged, he consoled himself by saying, If my father did not flog me, who would? This is that authoritarianism at work. The Paraguayan army was completely obedient, completely you know, dedicated to following orders. The second reason the Paraguayan stood a chance in this war was astonishing, remarkable, outstanding morale. Amazing morale. The Paraguayan soldier was virtually unpaid, badly fed, badly equipped, and he fought like a lunatic, long beyond the point anyone else would have just given up. I am reminded of the Japanese in World War II. That's the level of morale we're talking about. And this came down to Paraguay's unique level of nationalism. Every Paraguayan citizen had been force-fed a crazy cocktail of obedience to authority and extreme nationalism for their entire lives. But this feeling of belonging, cohesion, and unity was something that went far beyond a dictator's orders or even the harshest discipline. Lopez alone does not cause the Paraguayan army to fight like they do. This feeling of unity and cohesion gave the Paraguayan army and nation a remarkable resilience that astonished friend, foe, and neutral alike, and it enabled them to fight to the bitter end. So these were the armies of the Paraguayan War. Brazil, professional and solid, hampered by political strife. Argentina, disunited and reluctant, well-armed but not well-motivated. Uruguay, a small army, mostly veterans, but badly equipped and tired of war. And Paraguay, brave, eager, highly motivated, but lacking very basic skills in most military things. But only Paraguay, with its high level of centralization, autocracy, and ethnic identity, had a true national army. But not even courage and willpower can make up for garbage leadership. Francisco Solano Lopez himself was the weakest link of the army he had forged. He had an obsessive need to control everything and make all the decisions. He didn't even like promoting people, which is why Paraguayan armies were often led by majors and colonels and not generals. This led to a rigid, inflexible command structure where independent thinking was virtually forbidden. For example, let's jump back into the narrative. When he heard about the Allied raid on Corrientes, Lopez freaked out and ordered, ordered General Robles to turn around and march all 200 miles back to his start point at Corrientes. 
He sent this order when Robles was only a few miles away from his main objective, the Argentine town of Goya. It didn't make any sense. Robles is like, you, you want me to turn around? I just marched all the way out here. This, this is bonkers. But Lopez's order to march back started with, in this situation, like, in this situation, you need to march back immediately. So when Robles learned that Paraguay had recaptured Corrientes, he was like, oh, okay, situation's changed. Emergency's over. Hey boss, you still want me to, like, throw away a month's worth of progress down here? Lopez responded, you do what I freaking tell you, don't you dare question my orders. So Robles received this message and said to himself, eh, Lopez must not understand. Goya is the best place to link up with the Eastern Army, which I guess is Lopez's overall plan. He didn't tell me his plan, but it seems like Goya would be super important for whatever plan he has. Capturing this town makes big, like, capturing this town is a military objective. We're almost there. Eh, he'll thank me later. So Robles kept marching. But when his army marched into Goya on June 2nd, Lopez blew a gasket. Robles realized, oh, oh crap, you're really mad, my bad. And then he turned around and started marching north, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I understand now, you're, you're really upset about this, I'm marching back, I'm doing, I'm doing what you told me to do. But it was too late. Robles had violated orders, even when he had a really good military reason to do so, and now he was in the doghouse. See, Lopez saw any insubordination, any violation, or even questioning of his orders, even saying that this wasn't a good idea, as tantamount to mutiny or treason. He could not stand anyone telling him he was wrong. I'm the general, I'm the military genius, I'm the main character, me, me, me. If you start getting ideas that aren't the same as mine, if you disobey any orders, even for a valid reason, you're a traitor. The hilarious thing is that Robles had been getting all these messages from Argentine and Brazilian leaders like Urquiza and Mitre offering him a fat stack of cash to betray Lopez. And he was like, no, I will never betray President Lopez or my country. But when Lopez found out about these messages, it only made him more suspicious. So he began preparing charges of insubordination and treason against General Venceslao Robles, his oldest and most experienced general. Robles' fate will have to wait, because Lopez was also planning something much bigger. All that stood in the way of his great invasion, besides his own ego, was the Brazilian Navy. Lopez was preparing for the decisive battle of the war, a battle that would be largely decided by his own garbage leadership. On June 9th, 1865, Marshal Lopez arrived at the fortress of Humaita, whose heavy guns dominated the Paraguay River north of Corrientes. His entire household, including Madame Lynch, had relocated from the comforts of Asuncion so Lopez could take personal command at Humaita. Granted, he was still miles away from any actual fighting, but after Robles' insubordination slash thinking for himself, Lopez had decided to take a more hands-on approach, starting with his main problem, the Brazilian Navy. 
Brazilian Admiral Francisco Barroso had lurked a few miles south of Corrientes ever since the Allied raid. His nine modern steamships sat along the west bank of the Piranha, across from the mouth of a small river called the Riachuelo. The Brazilian blockade prevented any Paraguayan warships or supply ships from heading downriver, and blocked Paraguay from contact with the outside world. For Lopez's western army to advance, for his country to resume the vital trade, the Brazilians had to be defeated. Problem was that compared to Lopez's small river navy, Barroso's squadron was just in a different weight class. The Paraguayan ships were all smaller, lighter, mostly civilian designs with fewer guns. Military steamships had their boilers positioned below the waterline, protecting them from enemy fire. Only the Taquari, which Lopez had purchased in Britain, had this feature. But all the Brazilian ships did. And even the Taquari was a midget compared to Barroso's mighty flagship, the Amazonas. Finally, the Brazilian crews were professional. They had much more experience. So in basically every dimension, the Paraguayans were absolutely outmatched. But Lopez was determined to attack nevertheless. He had to defeat Barroso to control the rivers, and he had to control the rivers to win the war. Maybe the Paraguayans couldn't beat the Brazilian Navy, but maybe they could steal it. This was Lopez's plan. Under cover of darkness, nine Paraguayan steamboats would sneak up on their enemies, fire a massive broadside, then board and capture the Brazilian warships. This was a plan where surprise and darkness were critical factors. A surprise night attack was their only chance against the Brazilian squadron. Lopez added three other elements to the plan. First, he selected one of his elite units to serve as the boarding party. These were the Black Paraguayans of the 6th Marine Battalion, the Nambi-E. Second, he ordered Major Jose Brugues to hide 22 cannons on the east bank of the river opposite the Brazilian warships. The idea was that maybe the Paraguayan artillery could ambush the Brazilian ships if they got close enough. Finally, Lopez decided that this plan needed a whole lot more Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War edition. That meant canoes. Let's talk about the canoes. The Paraguayan Chata was a long, wide canoe that could hold around 20 to 30 soldiers. What Lopez decided to do was tether six of these chatas to the Paraguayan steamboats and just plomp a 68-pound cannon into it to give the fleet more fire support. Just put a freaking cannon in your dinghy and tow it behind the steamboat like a heavily armed inner tube. For some reason, the Paraguayans just love using freaking canoes in this war. Like, this is going to happen. We're not seeing the last of these canoes. It's frankly kind of adorable and also suicidal. If you take nothing else away from this, when it comes to sheer ballsiness, modern special forces have nothing on a bunch of drunk Paraguayan teenagers with canoes. These dudes are out of their freaking minds. This plan was, huh, extremely bold, borderline psychotic. There were so many things that could go wrong. <laughs> and to make matters worse, the senior officer of the Paraguayan Navy was Captain Pedro Ignacio Meza an old, faint-hearted man who was terrified of making decisions and had zero naval experience whatsoever. Lopez made things even worse by giving Meza comprehensive, detailed instructions that he was to follow to the letter. Do exactly what I say, Meza. I'm warning you. You don't want to be on my naughty list along with General Robles. So Meza was already inches from a heart attack at any given moment, and now he worried that if he messed up Lopez's amazing plan, he would be accused of treason. 
The Paraguayan Navy set out from Humaita on the night of June 10th, 1865, and things went wrong immediately when a Paraguayan ship broke down like the boiler stopped working. Meza should have just left it behind and kept moving. He, he was on a clock, but he was so terrified of violating orders that he waited hours for it to be fixed. When he finally gave up and moved on, so much time had passed that the sun was starting to rise. At this point, Meza should have called off the attack and tried again tomorrow. He needed the cover of night, but that would be violating Lopez's orders. Can't do that. So the Paraguayans sailed onwards to the Battle of the Riachuelo, June 11th, 1865. It was cloudy but still bright at 8.30 a.m. with the mist burning off the Parana River. Meza's fleet was clearly visible as it passed Corrientes. One Paraguayan officer, Juan Centurion, remembered watching the Paraguayan steamers pass down the river, tugging those stupid canoes packed with men and cannons behind them. He heard an Argentine civilian mutter, Heavens, those Paraguayans have balls. Centurion and some other spectators rode south towards the Riachuelo, where their little peanut gallery would witness the entire battle. Remember, Lopez's entire plan revolved around surprise and darkness, but Meza was approaching in broad daylight, and everyone could see him, especially the Brazilians. Admiral Barroso was not an idiot. He had been expecting an attack for weeks. He had standing orders in place to maintain maximum vigilance, keep constant patrols, and keep the ammunition right next to the guns just in case. Finally, he kept one ship constantly posted upriver to watch for a Paraguayan attack. So this ship saw Meza approaching from miles away, sent up the signal for enemy attack imminent, then came running back to rejoin the squadron. Like, they're coming boys, they're coming, it's go time! The Brazilian squadron went from 0 to 100 in the blink of an eye. Hatches were secured, fuel stowed, and the guns locked and loaded. The marines prepared their rifles. Admiral Barroso donned his dress blues, strapped on his sword, and leveled his telescope at the horizon, seeing Meza's ships approaching from the north. The Brazilian Navy was the exact opposite of surprised. Captain Meza, on board the Taquari, led the Paraguayan Navy downriver in line of battle. But when he saw the Brazilians clearly waiting for him along the western bank, he freaked out. Instead of following Lopez's plan, he hugged the eastern bank trying to bypass the Brazilian fleet and shelter under Brugues' artillery near the mouth of the Riachuelo. The Battle of the Riachuelo began when the Paraguayans opened fire at 9.25 a.m., and the Brazilians responded. The waters of the Parana River vibrated with the boom of heavy guns. It didn't take long for gun smoke to obscure the battlefield, allowing Meza to slip south past the Brazilian fleet. Neither side really did any damage to each other with these first few shots. Well, okay, the Brazilians freaking obliterated one of the Paraguayan bungee canoes, and another shot pierced the boiler of the Jejui, the last ship in the Paraguayan line, but her British engineer was able to get her running again. Lopez's plan was already shot to hell. No surprise, no darkness, no close-range broadside before a sudden boarding attack. The Paraguayan marines were confused. One of them remembered. When we sailed downriver on full steam, passing all the Brazilian steamers, we were all shocked, since we knew that all we had to do was approach the steamers and go all aboard. Meza's ships broke contact with the Brazilians and dropped anchor near the mouth of the Riachuelo. 
Both sides took a pause and tried to figure out what to do next. Barroso could have gone upriver and attacked Asuncion, but that would mean passing those deadly guns at Humaita. Meza could have kept cruising south all the way to Buenos Aires. A raid on the undefended Argentine capital might have had a huge impact on the war, but Lopez's orders had zero wiggle room, and Meza wasn't imaginative enough to do that anyway. Meza was already panicking, like, Oh, I messed up. Lopez is gonna kill me. Uh. The Paraguayan ship captains were like, Hey boss, we gotta do something. What's the plan? Let's go get him. Meza, old, confused, and probably convinced that he was already a dead man, was like, Uh, 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 uh. Well, here's the thing about taking initiative in warfare. If you don't make a decision, someone else will make the decision for you. Admiral Barroso decided to attack. He ordered his flagship to raise two signals that passed into Brazilian legend. First, paraphrasing Admiral Nelson, Brazil expects that every man will do his duty. Second, Attack and destroy the enemy at the closest possible range. The Brazilian fleet belched steam as it lurched into line formation. A huge steam serpent, blazing fire, they plowed through the river and unleashed hell on their enemy. The battle of the Riachuelo was joined. The noise was like one continuous roar, shells and shots streaking past both sides and into the jungle. Observers described the river as riddled by so many cannonballs that it seemed to be boiling. The Paraguayans tried to board the Brazilian vessels, but the storm of grape and canister drove them back. The Paraguayan marines screamed in frustration. Let's approach the steamers. We came in order to board them and not to be killed on deck. But now, Barroso had messed up. Because he was on a river, not the open ocean, and rivers have shallows and sandbanks in unexpected places. Plus, the Brazilian warships were heavier ocean-going vessels with deeper hulls. Barroso's flagship, the Amazonas, had to swerve to avoid one of the sandbanks, and when they did this, the formation fell into confusion. Then Bruges's artillery opened up from its hidden position on the right bank, raking the Brazilian squadron with 22 guns worth of shot. One Brazilian ship, the Belmonte, ended up caught in the crossfire. She withdrew from battle after 20 minutes, riddled with 37 holes. Something to think about. Every cannonball hitting wood created a shower of splinters like a fragmentation bomb or a flechette round that often did more damage than the cannonball itself. Barroso decided to move further downriver, where his ships would have room to turn around and come back to re-engage the Paraguayans. But as his ships steamed away from the Riachuelo, disaster struck. The last ship in the Brazilian line, the Jequitinhonha, ran aground on a sandbank. As the Paraguayan artillery poured fire into her, Meza saw his chance. He sent three of his ships to capture the trapped Brazilian vessel. But the Jequitinhonha blasted away with her guns like a cornered animal, keeping her foes at a distance. Brazilian Lieutenant Garcindo Fernandes de Sá, commander of the Parnahaiba, saw his comrades aboard the Jequitinhonha in danger. So he made a sharp turn out of the Brazilian line to try and come to their rescue. But the Parnahaiba's rudder got twisted in a sandbank and broke. Lieutenant Garcindo's ship had lost all steering and drifted helplessly into the midst of the Paraguayan formation. Meza gave the order to board her. Three steamers full of cheering Paraguayan marines approached the Parnahaiba. Then Garcindo saw his chance. 
The Paraguari, largest ship in Lopez's fleet, crossed his bow. He ordered full steam ahead. Even without her steering, the Brazilian ship roared forward and rammed the Paraguayan ship in its side. The impact was ferocious, boards and rails splintering, men on both ships being tossed around. The Paraguari was split down to the waterline, her men plunging into the cold torrents of the Piranha River. Hey, Lieutenant Garcindo, the ancient Greeks are calling. They want their naval tactics back. But now the Parnahaiba was helpless. Three Paraguayan ships crowded around her, and the Nambi-E prepared to board. But then someone realized, get this, the Paraguayans had forgotten to load the grappling hooks. Are you serious right now? The entire plan was to board the enemy vessels and you forgot the grappling hooks? Welcome to Jackass, Paraguayan War Edition. So the Paraguayan Marines just had to do like a long jump onto the Brazilian ship, even as their vessels kept drifting apart. Because they're still in this river, the river's still flowing, so these vessels are rocking back and forth and still rolling down river, just smashing into each other. Some men were crushed between the two ships as they kept colliding with each other in the raging current. Eventually, through insane bravery and sheer dumb luck, the Nambi-E swarmed aboard with cutlasses and bayonets. The Brazilians fought bitterly. A sailor named Marcelio Diaz defended his nation's flag, fighting even after his right arm was cut off until he was finally overpowered. The black Paraguayan marines overwhelmed the Brazilian crew. A sergeant grabbed the drum and started beating on it as his comrades cheered. The Nambi-E had captured the Brazilian ship. Well, kinda. Most of their crew had retreated below decks, where Lieutenant Garcindo was trying to light up the powder magazine. He planned to blow up his own ship and hopefully take the surrounding Paraguayans with him. They were seconds away from blowing the Parnahaiba to bits when they heard the roar of guns. Admiral Barroso had come to the rescue. It had taken the other Brazilian ships an hour to turn around, but now the Amazonas loomed out of the smoke like a giant. Barroso's flagship was the biggest, baddest thing on the Piranha, and she was back to remind everybody of that. One Brazilian naval officer remembered seeing Barroso return in the nick of time. When I saw the Amazonas pass majestically between our line and that of the enemy, it made my soul rise. I found Barroso atop the bridge, standing impassive during that hailstorm of projectiles, megaphone in hand and stroking his long white beard. As he went by, he bellowed in a strong and clear voice, Follow in my wake! Victory is ours! Some accounts of this battle describe Barroso as a coward, George Thompson's account does. But George Thompson wasn't at the Battle of the Riachuelo. The first-hand accounts verify that Barroso earned his reputation as the Brazilian Nelson. The Amazonas went on what can only be described as a rampage. Barroso's gunners poured grape shot across the deck of the stricken Parnahaiba, shredding the Paraguayan marines and splashing the deck with blood. Lieutenant Garcindo's crew emerged from their hatches to reclaim their vessel. Next, Barroso turned on the Paraguayan ship Jejui, and his gunners demolished her in a matter of minutes. The next target was the Marques de Olinda, the Brazilian steamer that Paraguay had captured at the start of the war. It was commanded by Lieutenant Ezequiel Robles, brother of General Robles, who was apparently drunk out of his mind. The Amazonas rammed the Marques de Olinda, smashing her paddle wheel, before firing a cannonball through her boiler. The boiler ruptured, spraying the Paraguayan crew with scalding water, burning them alive. 
The Amazonas gave the same treatment to the Salta Oriental until she cracked open like an egg. Barroso had demolished three Paraguayan ships in a matter of minutes. As the rest of the Brazilian Navy closed in to finish the job, the gunners on the Amazonas kept busy by blowing the Paraguayan canoes out of the water one by one. Captain Meza was a wreck. Screaming, sobbing on the verge of a panic attack, he tried and failed to maintain control of his squadron. Then, a Brazilian Marine fired a rifle bullet through Meza's lung, mortally wounding him. Captain Reninho Cabral took command and ordered a retreat. The Brazilian fleet pursued, hammering away at their foes until the Paraguayans vanished into the setting sun. After hours of absolute chaos, fire and blood and water, the Battle of the Riachuelo was over. Paraguay had lost four out of the nine ships Lopez had sent, and the survivors were so battered that the repairs took almost a year. They had also lost 200 men killed and 1,000 wounded. Lopez, typically, reported it as a great victory, and no one dared to contradict him. As one Paraguayan noted, It was as much as a man's life was worth to spread bad news. Admiral Barroso was justified in claiming a great victory. Brazil had lost ships too, but they could replace their ships, and the Paraguayans couldn't. Still though, the Belmonte and Jequitinhonha both had to be abandoned. And Major Bruges's guns proved to be a much bigger problem than the Paraguayan Navy. Bruges's artillery would chase Barroso's fleet up and down the Parana River for the next few months, constantly trying to catch him in an ambush. Bruges didn't do that much damage, but he was an enormous pain in the neck. He prevented Barroso from really using the Piranha to the extent that he wanted, and he kept the Brazilians from exploiting their victory. So the, the Riachuelo was an incomplete victory for Brazil, but it was a disaster for Paraguay, and Lopez was responsible. He had put Meza in charge when Meza was clearly not up to the task, and he had given Meza a rigid set of instructions with the threat of punishment if he disobeyed. When something went wrong, as it always does in war, no plan goes perfectly, Meza didn't know what to do, and everything went to hell. This is why micromanagement is a really bad idea. Guys, I can't stress this enough, though. Lopez's plan was a crazy long shot, but if they had pulled it off, if they had captured the Brazilian ships, Paraguay might have won the war. This was their chance, maybe their only chance, to nullify the obvious material advantages of their enemies. But instead, the western prong of Lopez's invasion had been shattered. The Argentine warlords, who had been waiting for a big Paraguayan victory to rise up against Mitre, kept their heads down after the Riachuelo, not wanting to side with the loser. The Paraguayan fleet never posed a serious threat again. The Triple Alliance held unquestioned naval supremacy on the rivers, which were so critical for logistics in this war. And without a means of challenging that naval supremacy, Paraguay couldn't break the Allied blockade, leaving them cut off from the outside world, from foreign trade, unlike the Allies. The Riachuelo was the decisive battle of the Paraguayan War. A Paraguayan victory had been within reach. It was the only way they stood a chance of winning the war. But Lopez's narcissism, his ego, his need to control, ruined his own plan before it began. And it wouldn't be the last time. Despite his claims of victory, Lopez was furious. He ordered a random sailor shot for cowardice. Like, didn't even know anything about it. Like, hey, you, you look like a coward. Die. 
Captain Meza died of his wounds not long after the battle, and Lopez had no forgiveness for the old man. He said, If Meza had not died of one bullet, he would have died of four. Implying that Meza would have faced a firing squad. Like, Lopez, it, dude, it's you. You're the problem. It's you. These are not healthy leadership behaviors. Lopez didn't have the chance to execute Captain Meza, but not everyone was that lucky. Lieutenant Robles, commander of the sunken Marques de Olinda, had been taken prisoner by the Brazilians. He was badly wounded, writhing in pain as the Brazilian medical staff tried to treat his injuries. But Robles tore off his bandages, screaming that he would die a free Paraguayan, then live a prisoner. The Brazilians were like, dude, have it your way. And Lieutenant Robles immediately died. <laughs> Lopez saw this when he heard about it as the apex of Paraguayan courage. Once again, absolute stupidity treated as glorious heroism. Welcome to Jackass, Paraguayan War Edition. General Robles went into mourning after his brother's death. Already on thin ice with his commander-in-chief, he decided that now was the best time to start a drinking binge. He also said some things that you really shouldn't say when your boss is an insane dictator. When a messenger from Lopez came to try and present him an award, Robles exploded. What value is there in such rubbish? What I want is clothes for my poor soldiers who are shivering from the cold. If they don't like it, they can go ahead and shoot me. <laughs> what are you going to do, shoot me? Quote from man about to be shot. Lopez sent his brother-in-law, General Vicente Barrios, to arrest Robles for insubordination and treason. We last saw Barrios molesting his way across Mato Grosso province. Robles went back to Humaita to face trial. All of his staff officers were also arrested and tried. For some reason. Robles didn't even bother defending himself. He knew where this was going. He signed his death warrant in good humor, tossing the pen away afterwards and yelling, Goodbye, pen! General Robles faced the firing squad on horseback, cheerfully smoking a cigar as the Paraguayan sentries drilled him through the head with a rifle bullet. He was luckier than one of his staff officers, Lieutenant Gauna. Gauna was a freaking huge dude, like a heckin' chonker of a guy, who apparently wrestled alligators just for fun in his spare time. Lieutenant Gauna received five full volleys from the firing squad, just getting up after each round and dusting himself off. Alright boys, uh, round three, let's go. Like, what is even going on here? Is he, is he a barbarian class? Does he have more hit points? Good old Paraguayan bullets ain't enough to kill this beefy boy. The firing squad eventually had to stab him to death with their bayonets because they ran out of ammo. Welcome to Jackass, Paraguayan War Edition. And stupid dictator shenanigans. That's a combo. At least Stalin waited a few years before getting to the killing your own general stage of dictatorship. Anyway, the defeat at the Riachuelo meant that the western prong of Lopez's offensive was ruined. All his hopes, whatever those were, now lay in the eastern prong. Colonel Estagaribia's 12,000 men marching down the Uruguay River on a collision course with the armies of the Triple Alliance.
The victory at the Riachuelo sparked a massive celebration in Brazil. Crowds gathered in every city, singing, dancing, drinking, exuberant in their triumph. Dom Pedro, outwardly sanguine but privately enthusiastic, gave thanks to the Imperial Navy for their courage and diligence. A huge painting of the Riachuelo still hangs in Brazil's National History Museum. But only days later, a different sort of news reached Rio de Janeiro. Dom Pedro wrote to his longtime confidant, the Condessa de Baral, Rio Grande has been invaded. My place is there. And I am leaving the day after tomorrow. Within days, Pedro was on his way south to rally his nation against the invader. Rio Grande do Sul province, in the far south of Brazil, was known for its cattle ranching and frontier culture, as well as its rebelliousness. And now it was the next target of the Paraguayan offensive. On June 10, 1865, one day before the Battle of the Riachuelo, 12,000 Paraguayan soldiers appeared on the Uruguay River. Lieutenant Colonel Antonio Estegardibia's force had marched 100 miles overland, and now they launched an assault crossing from the Argentine to the Brazilian side of the river. The Paraguayans stormed across in canoes, scattering the poorly trained Brazilian defenders and capturing the town of Sao Borja. The invasion of Rio Grande do Sul had begun. Lieutenant Colonel Antonio Estegardibia was not super bright. Lopez's golden boy had been promoted way above his competence level. One subordinate called him a sergeant with the epaulets of a lieutenant colonel. No one respected him, including his own soldiers and his much more competent second-in-command, Major Pedro Duarte. Estegardibia and Duarte hated each other, so they decided to keep their armies on opposite sides of the river. Duarte would take 4,000 men down the western bank, the Argentina side, while Estegaribia would take 8,000 down the eastern bank, the Brazil side. So on June 19th, these forces began marching southwest down the Uruguay River on parallel courses. And nothing really stood in their way. Rio Grande do Sul normally had a large Brazilian army garrison, but most of those guys had gone on the invasion of Uruguay. And the Argentines were having classic Argentine issues. Justo José de Arquiza was one of the big players in La Plata. He had been the leader of the Argentine Federalists for decades, which is why his alliance with centralist leader Mitre was such a big deal. When the Paraguayan invasion began, Urquiza called out his followers, the feared gaucho cavalry that had always been the source of his strength. They gathered at the town of Basualdo on the Uruguay River, directly in Estegaribia's path. But on July 3rd, 1865, Urquiza's army mutinied and deserted. They went home. Their loyalty to Urquiza took second place to their hatred for the centralists. They would have gladly fought for Urquiza against Mitre, but they wouldn't fight for Urquiza for Mitre. One of their leaders said, You call on us to fight against Paraguay. Never, my general, for that nation is our friend. Call on us to fight the Brazilians and Portanos, and we will be ready, for they are our enemies. Remember what I said. Lots of Argentines still regarded Brazil as the main enemy, and lots of Argentines would rather kill each other than kill the Paraguayans. They might live in Argentine territory, but Urquiza's followers didn't see themselves as part of the Argentine nation. Urquiza retired to his ranch in humiliation after the mutiny at Basualdo. 
He was basically out of the war. And Mitre was panicking because now nothing stood in the way of the Paraguayan offensive. Except for, of course, the iron hand of logistics. Even if Paraguayan supply services weren't a train wreck, which they were, there was no feasible way to supply Estegaribia's army when he was 100 miles from Paraguay and moving farther away all the time. His army had to survive by pillaging the countryside. This also involved lots of random looting. The Paraguayans stole everything that wasn't nailed down and some things that were. But yeah, the Paraguayans don't have a supply train. They're just taking what they can get from the countryside, which means if they stay anywhere in one place, they're going to be screwed. Disease, fatigue, and miserable conditions turned the Paraguayan march into a nightmare. Soldiers slogged through rushing ravines and rancid swamps, lashed by the constant winter rainstorms. Dysentery was everyone's new best friend. Estegardibia's undisciplined, strung-out army left a trail of dead horses and abandoned loot and dying soldiers behind them. That's a really great sign when you're just leaving your own sick soldiers behind like Big Mac wrappers. It's going great. Brazilian resistance amounted to harassment. The local Brazilian general was doing like a Fabian strategy designed to nibble away at Estegaribia's supply lines. On June 26, the Brazilians busted up a Paraguayan raiding force at the small battle of Mbutui. I'm probably pronouncing that one really wrong. It's spelled really funny. Mbutui, I think. But anyway, small battle. It usually gets a lot more attention in Paraguayan war histories, but it really is just kind of a little bitty battle. But so other than that, the Brazilians basically just kept their distance, harassing the Paraguayan advance. They figured Estegaribia doesn't have any supply lines. He's screwed the farther he goes. Let's see how far he goes. The Brazilians also wreaked havoc on the Paraguayan communications. This was the brainchild of a young Brazilian army lieutenant and recent military academy graduate, Lieutenant Floriano Pixoto. Pixoto managed to scrounge up a couple of small riverboats and turn them into a DIY navy. These boats were crewed by the black Brazilian volunteers, the Zuavos Bahianos, who quickly proved their worth. Lieutenant Pixoto's fleet cut the river link between Duarte's and Estegaribia's columns, killing any coordination between them. The Zuavos only had three ships, but the Paraguayans had zero. Once again, control of the rivers was vital. This is also the kind of creative thinking and personal initiative that the Brazilian military displayed, but the Paraguayan military couldn't because of the dead hand of Solano Lopez. Francisco Solano Lopez had given Estegaribia very specific instructions. March as far as the Ibiqui River and await further orders, and do not let yourself be trapped inside any towns. Problem was that Estegaribia was too far away for Lopez to control. It took over a week for messages to get to Humaita and back, and the farther he went, the harder it got. To make matters worse, Estegaribia decided to cross the Ibiqui River anyway and keep on marching. Remember that, you know, Lopez is the last person whose orders you want to violate, but Estegaribia figured, it's okay, I'm his golden boy. He won't execute me. It's worth taking a minute and asking, what were these guys actually supposed to be doing down here? Like, historians still have no idea what Lopez was actually trying to accomplish with this invasion. He never told anyone, least of all Estegaribia or Duarte, 12,000 Paraguayan troops wandered into the wilderness with no objective, no goal. And since Lopez was so far away, even if he had a plan, how was he supposed to execute it? 
On August 5th, 1865, Estegardibia marched into the city of Uruguayana. Uruguayana was the last stop on the Uruguay River before the actual borders of Uruguay itself. The local Brazilian commander, General Canabarro, had fortified the town and stocked it with supplies, but then decided that he couldn't defend it, so he just left, <laughs> and Estegardibia walked into a well-defended, well-supplied base camp. Just for me? How sweet. Across the river, Major Duarte stopped at the Argentine town of Paso de los Libres. Estegardibia decided to hang out in Uruguayana until he received further orders, which he never did. He didn't know what to do next. Lopez hadn't told him the overall plan. So the Paraguayan invasion force had marched 200 miles into enemy territory and just sort of stopped. This gave the Allies plenty of time to react. Bartolome Mitre wanted more time to train his armies at Concordia, but the Brazilians demanded that he take action. Obviously, Estegaribia was pillaging his way across their territory and he had to be stopped. Mitre had no choice but to concede to his ally. He put together a vanguard consisting of the entire Uruguayan army and small units of Argentines and Brazilians. This vanguard would link up with General Palnero, hero of the Corrientes raid, and march north to confront the Paraguayan offensive. Mitre chose Uruguayan President Venancio Flores to lead the vanguard. Flores was an odd choice. The Uruguayan guerrilla leader turned politician wore no uniform, just a poncho and sombrero to complement his enormous mustache. You know that old western movie stereotype of like a Mexican cowboy? The, the super like stere big stereotype? F Flores looked exactly like that. He was used to leading light cavalry raids on the plains, not a combined arms force from three allied nations. Mitre probably chose Flores to avoid any rivalry between the Brazilians and Argentines, since Uruguay didn't have any real power in this alliance, they were just happy to be here. The weakest of the three allies would play a starring role in the first big land battle of the war. The Allied army set out on July 18th. This march is one of the most miserable things I've ever heard of. Like, every time I read about this march, I'm like, jeez... The Allied troops had to cross a dozen rivers, and the winter rains drenched everything. Carts got stuck in the mud, horses and oxen died by the score, meaning that men were pulling carts of supplies by hand down the muddy tracks. The young Brazilian recruit, Dionisio Cerqueira, remembered seeing like dudes just washed away by the river because they weren't unhealthy. They were just carrying hundreds of like a hundred pounds of equipment, they just couldn't handle it, so down I go. <laughs> So yeah, it's, it's miserable, and miserable masses of camp followers trailed the army. Wives, prostitutes, mothers and girlfriends, and everything in between. There's a story from this march of a camp follower giving birth on the side of the road, before just showing up an hour later, baby in hand, to rejoin the column. Uruguayan Colonel Leon Palleja did his best to keep his Florida battalion on their feet. Well, that was, I mean literally, keeping them on their feet was the problem. He only had 86 pairs of boots for his thousand men, and his soldiers' trousers chafed their thighs until they bled. By the time of the upcoming battle, most of Palleja's men wore no pants at all, just winnie-the-pooing their way to war. The desertion rate was predictably massive, everyone was getting sick with god knows what, and soldiers were just falling out of the march and dying. If that wasn't enough, 
Palleja reported two Argentine soldiers that were dragged off and mauled by jaguars during the course of one of these marches. Let's not even talk about spiders, snakes, and all the other lovely creatures of South America, a continent where the frogs are poisonous. Yeah, yeah, miss me with this. I'm, this is one war I have no desire to be part of. Like, I would honestly rather be at large parts of the Crimean War than this one. The world wars are still worse, though. By the time Palnero's force linked up with Flores, the Allied army numbered around 10,000 men, and they were headed for Duarte's isolated 3,200 men near Paso de los Libres on the west bank of the Uruguay River. So Duarte sees these guys coming, they outnumber me three to one, and he sends a message over to Estegaribia on the east bank, like, hey dude, send me some reinforcements, I'm a sitting duck over here. Estegaribia responded, Tell Major Duarte that if his spirit is low, he should come and take charge of Uruguayana's force, and I'll go fight the battle. Not super helpful. Like, dude, the enemy's coming? You're outnumbered three to one? You have no artillery? Sucks, bro. Not my problem. Good luck. Duarte was on his own. Major Pedro Duarte was one of the better Paraguayan commanders. He actually used stuff like reconnaissance, which almost nobody in this war does any reconnaissance, so that's, you know, that's good, right? But even the better Paraguayan commanders were really bad at basic tactics. Duarte set up his small army with its left flank on the Uruguay River, its right flank on the smaller Yate River, and a swamp right behind him. Putting himself in a little, like, in a cul-de-sac so retreat would be impossible. Oh, and he put his army at the bottom of a hill. Anakin Skywalker could tell you, you want the high ground. You, you're, you got your back to a river at the bottom of a hill. This was, in short, the single worst defensive position possible. Duarte could have been literally anywhere else. Like, historians are like, he could have been behind the river. He could have been on top of the hill. He could have been to the right of the river. But no, this, for some reason... Welcome to Jackass Paraguayan War Edition. Like, a live-action role player has a better sense of tactics than Pedro Duarte. But it was too late, because Flores' army arrived late in the evening of August 16th, 1865. 3,200 Paraguayans versus 10,000 allies. Very few soldiers slept before the Battle of Yate, the first great land battle of the Paraguayan War. Flores and Palleja encouraged their men that night, reminding them that the Uruguayans were the smallest country in the alliance. They had to prove themselves. The Paraguayans, virtually trapped against the river and the swamp, prepared to fight to the bitter end. An old Paraguayan saying went back and forth through the ranks. When death comes, there will be time enough for rest. Yeah, you ain't gonna see that quote on the inspirational poster anytime soon. August 17, 1865, was a cold, foggy morning. President Flores moved his forces onto the heights overlooking the Paraguayan position. He sent Duarte an invitation to surrender. Duarte responded that his orders didn't say anything about surrender. Flores was like, all right, have it your way. The Battle of Yate was a go. Flores opened the battle with an artillery barrage. He was on the high ground, and his army had 24 guns, which was 24 more than Duarte had. Sitting at the top of the hill, Flores figured, Fighting fair is overrated. I'll just sit up here and shoot them while they're trapped and can't shoot back. The Paraguayans were basically screwed, or they would have been. 
except that the Uruguayan infantry, bootsless, pantsless, and eager to prove themselves to their allies, jumped the gun. Flores was over there on the left flank, talking with General Palnero, when something caught his eye. He turned to see Colonel Palleja leading the Uruguayan infantry downhill towards the Paraguayan defenses. Flores groaned. Ah, Palleja. Always Palleja. You get the feeling this wasn't the first time Colonel Palleja went off script, because now the Uruguayans were blocking the Allied artillery fire, meaning Flores' plan was shot. Four battalions of Uruguayans swept down the hill with fixed bayonets, climbing over defensive obstacles to pitch into their foes. The Brazilians and Argentines, of their own volition, charged in to join them. The Paraguayans fought ferociously, firing musket volleys, slashing with bayonets, and standing their ground. Soon the Allied infantry wavered and began to fall back. But Palleja's advance had exposed the Allied right flank, and at this point Duarte saw his chance and was like, holy crap, we might actually be able to win this. He ordered the Paraguayan cavalry to charge the enemy right flank. Lances under their arms and sabers flashing, Duarte's cavalry smashed into Palleja's men. The Uruguayans withdrew into square formations, a hedgerow of muskets in the waterlogged plain around Yate Creek, as Duarte's cavalry swarmed around them. Flores, to his credit, kept his cool and reacted quickly. He led the Argentine and Uruguayan cavalry to the rescue, and squadrons of horsemen splashed across the muddy plain. Flores himself was in the thick of the melee and was almost killed by a Paraguayan lancer when his own lance broke, before someone saved his life. Like I said, Flores is getting almost killed all the time. This is instance number one, there will be many more. But the Argentine and Uruguayan cavalry were the veterans of many civil wars, and they finally overwhelmed Duarte's horsemen. Skewered with lances or shot with revolvers, the mangled Paraguayan cavalry fled in disorder. On the Allied left flank, General Palnero bypassed Duarte's position from across Yate Creek and hammered his exposed flank with musket fire. The Paraguayan line began to crumble, but with the swamp to their backs, there was nowhere to run. A few Paraguayans did try to escape, but they either drowned or got run down by the Allied horsemen. The rest stood their ground, fighting to the bitter end. The Allies got their first real taste of how insane the Paraguayans were in combat. Colonel Thompson recorded, No human power could make the Paraguayans surrender at the Yate. Even single individuals would fight on with certain death before them. Another observer said, In this battle, as in so many others, one Paraguayan would be surrounded by a dozen of the enemy, all calling on him to surrender, to which he would make no response but fight on until he was killed. Now, around 1,200 Paraguayans did surrender, including Duarte himself, but the other 2,000 died to a man. The Uruguayan soldiers, hardened by years of guerrilla warfare, slipped the throats of the Paraguayan wounded before robbing their corpses. Duarte's army had been annihilated. Flores had the Paraguayan prisoners forcibly conscripted into the Uruguayan army. Mitre described this move as uncivilized and impractical, which sums it up. Yeah, everyone else is like, dude, what are you doing? Are you nuts? I bet these guys are going to be super reliable. And yes, the Paraguayan conscripts deserted back to their own lines at the first opportunity because, duh, this is the entirely predictable outcome of that. 
But anyway, the Battle of Yate was the war's first land battle, and it was a Paraguayan disaster. And now Colonel Estegardibia was in real trouble. He and his army had sat in Uruguayana, thumbs up their butts, while Duarte and his force were crushed on the other side of the river. And now they were up Dysentery Creek without a paddle, because they only had 8,000 men and the Allied army was closing in around them. Estegardibia asked Lopez for orders. The reply was, Classic Lopez. Hold Uruguayana to the last man. Fight to the last man. Don't you dare surrender. The Paraguayan army was trapped. The Allies followed their victory at Yate by laying siege to Uruguayana, eventually with over 18,000 men. Estegribia's forces were running out of food, racked by disease, and no help was coming. But the Allies weren't having a great time either. The weather was miserable and the rain turned most of the fields into an icky, marshy mess. The local term was the bañado. Like, the bañado is a terrain feature in this war of just a giant marshy swamp that's basically a standing water. The Paraguayan War is just a very moist war. Get used to that. Like, everything's just always wet. Also, it was still winter, so they were also cold. This means that everyone is getting sick and now everyone's having a real bad time. The Allies wanted to get this over with. They were sending letters almost every day telling Estegardibia, Look, dude, just surrender, please. You know how this is going to end. When they sent a message that they just wanted to give the Paraguayans their freedom from Lopez, Estegardibia responded, As your excellencies show such zeal in giving the Paraguayan nation its liberty, why have you not begun by freeing the unhappy Negroes of Brazil, who formed the greater part of its population, and who groan under the hardest and most terrible slavery, to enrich and keep in idleness a few hundreds of the grandees of the empire? Oof. Say what you will about him, but, you know, he has a point. But there were other problems afoot, because as the Allies sat around, they started arguing. The Brazilians in particular. Manuel Marques de Sousa, Count of Porto Alegre, was the Brazilian army commander, and his cousin was Admiral Tamandare, commander of the Brazilian navy. And they both reminded that Mitre that, hey, uh, we're on Brazilian territory. The Treaty of the Triple Alliance says that we're in charge now. Mitre didn't want to hand over command, like, guys, this is impractical. I've been in command for months, plus I want to be in charge. Me, me, me. So they spent the whole siege arguing over who was in charge. I want to be in command. Nuh-uh, mom says I'm in command. And so forth. The siege of Uruguayana had run into the classic problem of the group project. The Argentines and Uruguayans just wanted to attack the city and finish this thing quickly. Mitre and Flores had to deal with domestic problems. They wanted the campaign over now. The Brazilians wanted to wait the enemy out. Plus, if... The siege was over when Mitre was still in charge. He might get all the credit. Divergent interests, different strategies, disputes over command. These issues would plague the Triple Alliance to the end of the war and beyond. Then, the tiebreaker arrived. On September 11, 1865, in the midst of a driving rainstorm, a white-bearded man in a long blue poncho arrived in the Allied lines. It was Dom Pedro II, Emperor of Brazil, come to do his duty and see the enemy off Brazilian territory. He was immediately pulled into the debate. Dom Pedro was an emperor, but he wasn't a general and he never would be. So he solved the problem. 
He, Dom Pedro formally assumed command of all Allied forces, then passed that command laterally to his equal, President Mitre of Argentina. Dude, I don't know what I'm doing, and I acknowledge that. By asserting his rights but still giving control to the actual general, Pedro preserved Brazilian honor, keeping his subordinates quiet, but also kept Mitre happy. He had bypassed the thorny issue of command. For now. But the Triple Alliance wouldn't always have Pedro II around to solve their arguments for them. The Siege of Uruguayana was Pedro II's only visit to the war front throughout the conflict. He was legally forbidden from leaving Brazil unless Parliament gave him permission. This was also the only time that the three leaders of the Triple Alliance, Pedro, Mitre, and Flores, all met during the war. It's kind of a wild trio. Dom Pedro, regal, royal, and humble. Mitre in a ragged uniform with a weird, absent-minded expression. And Flores, a cartoon character, looks like a kid's cowboy costume, who spent more time playing with his dog than actually doing his job. A Brazilian officer saw Pedro as obviously the most impressive of the bunch. The emperor, with his great height, spoke to his subjects, to Mitre, to Flores, to all who surrounded him, seeming to say, Acknowledge that I am in truth the first citizen of South America. There was also an ideological difference. Mitre saw this war in a pragmatic, Machiavellian sense, a means of unifying Argentina under the leadership of Buenos Aires. Pedro saw the war in an ideological sense, the battle of civilization versus barbarism, of progress versus autocracy. Flores was just happy to be here. He played with his dog. Colonel Estegaribia had a choice. His army was out of food. He could follow Lopez's orders and hold Uruguayana to the last man, or he could try to escape, break through the Allied lines, and live to fight another day. But then he would have to face Lopez. Estegaribia had violated both Lopez's orders not to cross the Ibiqui River and not to get trapped in a town. And Estegaribia had heard about what happened to General Robles. See, this is what happens when you subscribe to the Darth Vader school of military leadership. All your subordinates are too afraid of you to make the correct decisions. Estegaribia could choose to save his army and face Lopez, or he could choose to fight to the last man in Uruguayana. Or he could choose a third option. On September 18th, 1865, Colonel Estegaribia surrendered his entire army to the Allies. It was the only time in the entire war that a large Paraguayan force surrendered intact. 5,500 Paraguayan soldiers marched into captivity. 1,500 had died from starvation or disease during the siege. One Allied officer watched the malnourished Paraguayan prisoners stumbling out of Uruguayana. It was the most comical, if not the most abject, scene that South America has ever witnessed. One was wearing a woman's hat, another held a chair, others cooking pans, and all showed a satisfaction and joy that in many was due to the state of drunkenness in which they found themselves. They ran out of food, but they still had plenty of booze somehow? That's soldiers for you. Don Pedro was almost disappointed to see the Paraguayan prisoners. He described them as, An enemy unworthy of being beaten. Such a rabble. Estegaribia's surrender was the nail in the coffin for the great Paraguayan offensive. Once again, Lopez was ultimately responsible. 
He had sent 12,000 men on an unsupported march into enemy territory and replaced the relatively competent Duarte with a personal crony who surrendered without a fight. Worst of all, it had been pointless. The destruction of Estegaribia's army contributed nothing to the Paraguayan war effort besides losing more soldiers that Lopez could not replace. The Paraguayan dictator was furious over the surrender. Estegaribia had been supposed to fight to the last man, but instead, Lopez felt humiliated that his army had lain down its arms without a fight. When he read the news to his subordinates, they were stunned into silence. Lopez lashed out. I see that this national disgrace, which we should all deeply deplore, has no effect on you. Get out immediately. Lopez simmered with fury for days, tearing up his personal papers and screaming at the walls. Even Panchito, his favorite son with Eliza, was afraid to go near him. Lopez stewed for days before admitting reality. The offensive had failed. It was time to pull back and prepare for the defense of the homeland. The Paraguayan army began to withdraw from Argentine territory. Robles' former command was assumed by General Francisco Isidoro Resquin, a big blocky commander who always did exactly what Lopez told him. Over the next few months, Resquin shipped the Paraguayan forces back across the Parana River. Mitre wanted to stop him and block his retreat. After all, Barroso's squadron was still on the Parana River. If Barroso could move his navy up there and interdict Resquin's withdrawal, he might destroy the Paraguayan army or he might cut it off in Argentina. But the Allied command structure failed yet again. Admiral Tamandare, commander of the Brazilian fleet, was too worried about the danger to his ships to risk them trying to destroy the Paraguayan army. Tamandare was cautious to a fault, the South American version of George McClellan from the Civil War. Like, this guy never wants to risk any sort of military action whatsoever. His ships are too precious. Barroso wanted to go mess up the withdrawal, but his boss said no, and no one in the high command could override him. Mitre commanded the Allied Army, but not the Allied Navy. The Brazilian Navy answered only to Tamandare. So the Paraguayan army escaped over the river back to their homeland, and a major opportunity for the Allies to shorten this war was lost. By November 1865, Argentina was free of Paraguayan troops. By New Year's Eve 1865, the Allied armies were gathering on the south bank of the Parana around Corrientes. The sleepy Argentine river town had transformed into a massive supply depot, flooded with Brazilian, Argentine, and Uruguayan troops, and thousands of camp followers and merchants and entrepreneurs and doctors and nurses providing the army's needs. Bartolomé Mitre remained in command as the Allies built up their strength, stockpiled supplies, and looked uneasily to the north. Across the Parana River, Francisco Solano Lopez and the Paraguayan army stared back. They were building up too, and waiting for the Allies to make their move. Phase 1 of the war, the Paraguayan offensive phase, was over. Lopez had been comprehensively defeated on the rivers and on the land, and most of it was his own fault. And now the Allies were preparing for Phase 2, the phase everyone dreaded. The invasion of Paraguay. Many Allied commentators predicted a quick, decisive victory over Francisco Solano Lopez and his barefoot army. They said this would be easy. 
Guys, say it with me. Famous last words. The Paraguayan offensive might be over, but the Paraguayan war had only begun. The defeat of the Paraguayan offensive wasn't the beginning of the end. It was the end of the beginning. Lopez's invasion was shattered, and now the Allies were on the offensive. The terms of the Treaty of the Triple Alliance that bound them together, that locked them into this war until Paraguay was utterly destroyed, were supposed to remain secret. But they hadn't. Someone talked. Someone always talks. An Uruguayan diplomat had given a copy of the treaty to a British diplomat, who sent it back to London. By early 1866, the whole world knew the Allied war goals. The Europeans were shocked, and the other nations of South America were outraged. International opinion, originally sympathetic to the Allies, began to turn against them. But when Paraguay learned the terms of the treaty, the entire context of the war shifted. Lopez's miserable leadership had launched them into war against most of South America, and then also wrecked the Paraguayan offensive. War weariness was setting in. The Paraguayans were starting to grow disillusioned with Lopez until the treaty was revealed. Now there was a clear objective that every Paraguayan understood. Defend the homeland. Defend the nation. Instead of abandoning Lopez, now they rallied around him. Because the war was no longer the marshal's folly, but a struggle for national survival. Paraguay's navy was ruined, and their army had suffered terrible losses. They were a small, isolated, landlocked country fighting half of South America. But they were unified, resilient, and determined to fight for every inch of their soil. For all his many flaws, no one was more determined than Francisco Solano Lopez. But the sheer grit and will Paraguay would display for the next five years, that wasn't just Lopez. It wasn't just fear or bootlicking or slavish commitment to a dictator. There was something more. Something proud and defiant in this small nation in the heart of the continent. The Paraguayans looked at the odds against them and said, Bring it. Two armies, the largest ever assembled in Latin America, faced each other across the Piranha River. The Allies had numbers, resources, economics, and firepower on their side. But the Paraguayans had discipline, morale, and will beyond anything their enemies dreamed. It wasn't much, but it might be enough to defeat the Triple Alliance. Thanks for listening today. I hope you loved today's episode. Gosh, that's probably our most epic naval battle since, I don't know, episode 26 with Von Spee in the Battle of the Falklands. Let me know what you thought. And if you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. Just make sure you read the fine print of any treaties you sign with them. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just make sure you're at the top of the hill before you do so. If you couldn't figure out the geography in today's episode, it does get complicated, check out my maps on unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod or drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. And check back in about four weeks for part three of the Paraguayan War as the Allies cross into enemy territory to face the Grand Army of Francisco Solano Lopez. This will be our big battle episode, including the Battle of Tuyuti, the largest battle in South American history. 
it's going to be carnage from start to finish, enormous fun, as long as you're not a participant. See you in our next episode, which carries the light-hearted title, Paraguayan War Part 3, The Funnel of Death. Only here on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>